Right, let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Until I was in college, my father was a policeman in the city of Phoenix. The majority of his career, he was a lieutenant, and whenever there was a um, homicide in Phoenix, in his precinct, he'd have to go to the scene. And by the time I was in middle school, I was really curious, like, what would that be like? What were the implications of going to a place like that? And so I would ask him what it was like, and he was a really wise man. He did not tell me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I had this kind of morbid curiosity, well... He got shot. What did that look like? And he just wouldn't give me details. Um, But I lost that curiosity uh, as a young person and I was studying martyrdom. Now I don't want to hear about anything bad. I can't watch shows on Netflix where people die. I just don't want to know. Um, Then when I was in graduate school, I worked for a biology department for several months, and I had the opportunity to go to the anatomy lab. And I asked my dad, what do you think about me going? And he said, unless you have to, I wouldn't go. You cannot unsee that once you see that. And he understood that that would make an imprint on my brain. And I didn't go. Thanks, Dad. Um, But to truly appreciate the consolation that's offered to Israel, we need to take a step back and look at what happens to them, just briefly, and the experiences that Judah had when they were in exile, and to understand some of that agony. Horrible things happened because people had turned their hearts away from God. They were unfaithful. They had abandoned his laws. So in that period, I mean, this is all prophecy in Isaiah, but it's speaking of things that will come to pass. So between Isaiah 39, you know, Hezekiah, and Isaiah 40, comfort ye my people, the crisis comes. In the first section of Isaiah, we hear Isaiah give the prophecy about God's judgment and the subsequent destruction of Judah, and we had that historical interlude last week with King Hezekiah, which included his lack of discernment and showing foreign nations all that his house had accumulated. Isaiah made it very clear to Hezekiah that everything good that he possessed, including his sons, some of his sons, would be hauled away in bondage. When Isaiah spoke those words to Hezekiah, The time that he foretold was still a long way off, but the judgment, as we know, did come. To understand the judgment that befell Judah, we have to understand what had been given to them and what was taken away. So then we take another step back a few hundred years to 2 Chronicles 6, when Solomon dedicates the temple in Jerusalem. It is the temple that contained the Ark of the Covenant that held the tablets that God had given to Moses with his laws. And that ark was a sign of God's presence among his people. And the fulfillment of the building of the temple was wrapped up in God's promises. God had promised his people a land. He had given him that land, them that land. So, and as Solomon is dedicating the temple, he's praying very specific prayers 
about what God has done and asking for God's protection and his deliverance. He reminds God about his promise to his father, David, that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne as long as they were faithful to God's laws. And then Solomon raised several propositions, including like if there's famine, if there's a battle, if we have foreign invaders, he's asking for God's future protection and redemption. And his last request is this, and I'm going to read from Second Chronicles. It's really important that we get this picture of what will be lost. If the people sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of captivity, to which they are carried captive, and pray toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, the prayer and their pleas, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. This comes to pass. 400 years later, these very things happened in 598 BC starts that the wave of the Babylonian incursions where they start encroaching on Judah and start taking people away. And then in, um, well, second Chronicles later in second Chronicles, it tells us that God had had enough of the evil Kings and the faithful faithlessness of the people. And Chapter 36 explicitly tells us that God brings a foreign invader who kills men, women, young, and old. No compassion. God also allowed the Judeans to be carried away to the invader's land. All the vessels of the house of God and all the treasures of the temple and all the treasures that the kings had amassed were taken away to Babylon. The temple and all the palaces were burned, and those who were not killed were taken into exile to become servants of the Babylonians. So that when this actually happens, this was drawn out over a, a period of a decade. And in the end, in 587 BC, Nebuchadnezzar II's armies utterly destroyed the temple, um, that place that was a sign of God's presence among the people. And that conquest also meant the end of David's line. And the land that God had given them was no longer theirs. So, as the prophet Isaiah foretold, the elites of Jerusalem were taken away into exile under the power of foreign domination. And it's no small journey to go from Jerusalem to Babylon, which is now Iraq. The Arabian Desert has no water, so you can't go across. You have to go up to the Euphrates and then down. And that's 900 miles. And the Jews were taken to a place where the people worshipped idols. It was a place of alienation, away from the presence of God, and we know that the exile lasted 70 years. All this was done to fulfill the word of the Lord. So it's in this context into which the prophetic message of, con of comfort and consolation comes. While Isaiah speaks of things that are yet to come, his prophecy is about the end of this 70-year exile that's mentioned in Second Chronicles. The voice of God speaks comfort to his people, saying that the time of her warfare, her hardship, 
her alienation has ended. The punishment for her guilt is over. Seventy years was the punishment that God ordained for what the people had done over generations. I think it's a really light punishment when you think about how long they were unfaithful. This is God's divine mercy to them. This is just 70 years. And here's another picture of mercy. That God in his divine initiative is telling them, I will make a way for you to come back to your homeland. And the return will not be just for them. God's glory will not just be for the Jews. The promise is that all flesh will see the glory of God. The glory that will be revealed is his very presence, not in a building, but in his son. The prophecy of consolation paints a glorious picture of who God is. It shows us that God is both the creator and the ruler of history. The depiction that God gives of his own authority over everything and over everyone is the assurance that the Judeans and we ourselves can be sure that our security is in him. All of his promises, we can be certain, all of his promises will be fulfilled. So the passages that we study today are really emphatic in God's own testimony that he is the beginning and the end. He made everything and he's directing everyone to an appointed end. The disaster that Isaiah foretold in chapter 39 had one solution, according to Alec Motier. And that solution is theology. I'm not talking about books. I'm talking about beliefs. Pure and simple beliefs that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he's going to do. In the midst of great adversity, when it's impossible to see the way, God will supply divine provision because of who he is. One of the repeated messages in today's text is fear not. And that message is rooted in the great I am, who God is. God is not going to be assailed by external forces. His own eternal being and the resources that go with it are infinite and inexhaustible. Fear not, the prophet says. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. God isn't just promising here to take his people from point A to point B. He's promising to tend them with tender mercy and love in his power. And his power is really large in this text. Of himself, God says that he is enthroned over the circle of the earth and that the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers to him. He destines rulers to become nothing. And he asks, who can be likened to him? And this is an important rhetorical question. Because he's speaking about a future time when the people will live in a holy, idolatrous culture. Motir pointed out um, in his commentary that in Babylonian creation myth, the creator God had to consult with other gods before he could act. This is not so with Yahweh. He, He does not need to consult with anyone. And the creator God 
also had to overcome challenging forces before he could create. Not so with God. He can hold the waters of the earth in his hand, and he relies on no one for counsel. And we're dealing here with a lot of figurative pictures about who God is. And the notion of God holding all the water of the earth in his hand made me really curious. Like, what would that look like? And thanks to the internet and science, (laughs) um, I found out that if you just gathered the seawater, not the lakes and springs, you would have a sphere that is 860 miles in diameter. And that would hold, the volume would hold almost 333 million cubic miles of water. That really, that's not very much compared to the whole size of the earth, but you know, water just covers 71% of the surface. It's not like it's solid water, but that's a lot. It just gives you this picture, like 860 miles across. I mean, that's God's hand holding that. He's that big. It gives you a sense of God's magnitude, these pictures that he's telling you. Um, and man's smallness. And it's an important part about God's teaching about himself because he's providing this picture that he is the creator who leads his people out of captivity, who calls them by their names. He has an abundance of power and his strength is trustworthy. No one of his children will go missing. And he says to his people, look at me, turn to me, don't be afraid, put your trust in me. There are striking contrasts here. When you think about the majesty of God, he's unimaginably great, and yet he has promised to tend his flock like a shepherd, that he's going to gather his flock into his arms and hold them to his bosom. That's father love beyond what we experience here because our fathers are finite beings. However, one of the clearest pictures I've had here of father love is in my own dad, um, particularly when I was 15. There was a summer day, and I was home by myself, and I was getting ready to go on a mission trip, and I was tired. I don't remember why I was tired, but I just knew that that was part of the equation. And I wasn't expecting anybody to come home, and I'm in my room, and I hear that somebody else is in the house. And instead of being logical and going to see, I kind of freaked out. And fortunately, I had a cordless phone in my room, and I called my dad at the police department. And I said, Dad, there's someone in the house. (laughs) And he said, just lock your door and wait in your room. And so I waited by the window still, watching the driveway. And this is imprinted on my brain in a good way. I watched my dad come up the walk with his gun drawn. And he was not mad at me when he found out the the intruder was my brother. (laughs) It embarrasses me still, but (laughs) you know that I just lacked the logic as a fifteen-year-old to like go see who it is. But I was scared, and the house had two back doors, and I had not heard one of the doors open. So um, that is a picture of like God swooping in to save. And my dad was kind and compassionate in those circumstances. He didn't get mad at me for making him leave work. He was going to lay everything down and risk his life for his child. In no uncertain terms, God illustrates over and over in Isaiah 40 and 41 that there is nothing that can come against him or threaten him or confound him. 
There's absolutely nothing and no one on earth that possesses anything that can threaten him. As the creator of all things, he's aware that we, his creatures, that the Judeans, his creatures, do not always see him as he is. He knows the folly of the human heart that thinks its hardship and its adversity are hidden from him. Yet God reveals his truth, and it's a truth that saves. He reveals his character and his power, his eternal nature, his wisdom, and his strength. It is God who will give strength to those who are weary and powerless. In the external circumstances of life that provoke fear, he's assuring his people that they are and will be secure in him. He will be the provision for their needs, and there will be no question that the strength and the supply come from his hands. In everything, everything, everything in life. I mean, as I was getting ready to come here, I, I'm tired. But I, I realized like, that I could do this. This is God. This is the strength in God in me. That you moms are able to do what you do every day. That is the strength of God in you. The words of Isaiah are not just pictures and ideas. They convey reality about God's covenant keeping. He promised Abraham that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. God formed that people for himself through Israel. And here in Isaiah, he's promising that he will redeem them and turn them back to him. He's teaching them about theology. How to rightly think about God by understanding who he is, what he said he will do what he's done and what he will do. One of the commands that God gives the exiles is to wait on him. Literally, this waiting on God. It means that they were to wait with expectant hope and confidence and expectancy for provision, for deliverance, and for the fulfillment of his promises. The exiles had to have the right understanding of God in order to do this. In order to even have that hope and to wait on him, you have to understand who he is. And like the exiles, we have to wait on God. To do so, we have to understand and look toward the reality of God as he's revealed himself. And as I was reflecting on what does it mean for us practically to wait on God? The picture of the woman who came to Jesus and anointed his feet, came to my mind. I saw her coming to anoint his feet. And Luke 7 gives this account where Jesus is having a meal in a Pharisee's house. And while he's there, a woman of the city who was a sinner, that's what the text says, learned that he was there and she brought this expensive ointment to anoint his feet. And she washed his feet with her tears She wiped them with her hair, she kissed his feet, and then she anointed them with that oil. That did not go over well with the whole crowd that was there. But the woman did these things because she recognized who Jesus was. He was a tender shepherd who had granted her forgiveness. She knew that Jesus loved her. She knew that she was a sinner, and yet she knew she could come to him. And she knew that the right response to him was to worship him to worship at his feet. And I don't think she would have come to him if she had thought that he would send her away. And he didn't. He affirmed her faith. So we have mercy in this picture that the Judeans did not have. 
because we've received Jesus. As we continue to study Isaiah, the promise of Christ will continue to unfold. Even so, after all the prophecy of Isaiah has been given, there's still a really long wait for God's people. It would be hundreds of years before the Redeemer came to God's people. And now we're in a waiting period again, a long waiting period, which is, you know, in God's timing, not long, but it's a long time. We're waiting for the second advent. In the here and now, while we wait for that, the same exhortations given to Israel apply to us. We have to recognize God for who he is, the creator of all things who will bring redemptive history to its appointed end. I know that every single person in this room has had struggles or will have struggles. This is just a guarantee of life. You will have adversity and not just once. It'll happen throughout the course of your life. And some of you are weary today in your body and in your souls. I'm weary and I want to pass through the hard things of life in my own strength and in my own time. That's not how this works. Whatever our burdens and our hardships or your blighted hopes in this life, your creator knows exactly what he's doing with you. He's working out our lives for his glory. And it's much easier, truly, to wait on God than to try to work things out according to our own ends. But how, do we do, how do we wait on God? I think we, this is not an exhaustive way, but I, three things come to mind. To dispose our hearts towards that expectant confidence in God. You wait with attention. You wait with service. And you wait with people. And so to wait with attention, what does that look like? The scripture and prayer. You're ceaselessly asking God for help and you're ceaselessly seeking his face. And believing that God is able and willing to make and will make provision for you. And I'm not talking about stuff. I'm talking about the, the strength to get through life that inner strength that you need when things are difficult. We all have a well inside of us called the Holy Spirit who's going to supply us with the strength we need when the hard times come. The for, you know, Waiting in this way, it seems very simple, and yet it's hard because it requires attention from us, it requires stillness, and it requires devotion. And those things are things we can only cultivate by God's grace, like, I don't naturally want to just stop. And if you, you moms probably do, but um, you know, I just I want to do things in my own power. But sometimes I just really sometimes lying down on my bed is the best way for me to be still. Again, I understand if you're a mom, probably not that easy. But it it just requires some willingness to say it's not going to be my way; it's going to be God's way. You can also wait on God in service. In a time of particular trouble, the Apostle Peter called the church, God's people, strangers and exiles. These, the church was not dragged off to Babylon, but they faced serious persecution. Paul told them to live as servants of God. And everyday faithfulness is going to look different for each one of us. Some of us have jobs to go to. Some of us are shepherding children. Some of us are caring for elderly parents, but 
there's always going to be some work that is needed from us, including here in the body. There's always going to be work to proclaim the good news. And you wait on God with people. God is for us individually, but more gloriously, he's for us corporately. I think that Sunday morning and the Sabbath in particular, they're signs that we're waiting for God while proclaiming who he is, thanking him for what he's done and will do for us. And our ministers are voices of consolation saying, this is who our good God is. And we can be voices of consolation and comfort to each other when we feel our exile here and we can't see beyond our present circumstances. The God of all comfort has ended our warfare that sin wrought over us, and he has pardoned our sin. And we can speak that into each other's lives. And we need to speak that into each other's lives. So I want to end with Psalm 25 as prayer. Dear Lord, we pray that you would lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all the day long. May integrity and uprightness preserve us, for we wait for you, Lord. Father, as we go from this place, send us out in your peace. Send us out as bearers of good news and reflections of your glory, Father. And we pray for your blessings today on Super Wednesday as the children gather here. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.